Hey guys, welcome to What You Doing, episode 10. Today, I have one of my really good friends, Sebastian Gillamatonia on, and we're just going to talk about gardening, sustainability, and this crazy year that we call 2020. It's a remarkable conversation. We had an absolute pleasure talking to each other like we always do. Our wives get extremely annoyed because of how crazy our conversations are. You will definitely see it in this episode. And I actually had to cut us off because we were going way over time. So I really hope you enjoy this next episode. And now, Sebastian Gelmatonia. Hello, Sebastian. How are you, man? Man, I am doing awesome. It's an excellent Monday. It is a fantastic. So, uh, question for you. Did you know that breakdancing is going to be the next Olympic sport in 2024? What? <laughs> breakdancing. I, I, felt, awesome. I, I saw this today. I felt obligated to tell you because I know you're an avid breakdancer. Oh, all the time. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, ironically, when I was in high school... Uh, during lunch, there was a group of people that would always be breakdancing. Like they were getting dedicated. seriously. And I always thought they were like, kind of like nerdy EDM dudes. And I'm like, huh, maybe they will be Olympians. They could be now it's uh it's official 2024. That's well, I shouldn't say it's official. I saw it on Reddit. So take it with a grain of salt, I guess. But, uh, I saw that and I was like, wow, that is uh, a bit of hilarious information. Well, man, I wanted to have you on today because you're always doing crazy things, and I just thought we'd like. I know that this is a uh, probably kind of going to be a kind of a random podcast, and I'm totally thinking that's great. But first of all, most curious, um, I got a tour of your garden in July, if I remember correctly. I wanted to ask, how did the end of the gardening season wrap up for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's back up just just a little bit on that one. So. This, this year, definitely been a chaotic year, and we retooled a lot of our um, uh, outdoors or traveling energies kind of back into building our, our home and our garden and really maximizing what we're doing at home. So with that, we started basically from a, a blank slate, and uh, we decided to build a greenhouse out of recycled uh, material. Um, I've been keeping bees for a couple years, so... We kind of expanded the bee operation. Uh, we ended up getting some chickens. My kids think it's awesome, and it's been it's been really fun. Keep planting trees, uh, and then we did a lot of raised beds. And we were really looking for how to do a semi permaculture style garden, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we did a lot of that, looking to say, what can we produce in the zone that we're in? Now, this year's a little crazy. We definitely had a hard frost, super late in the spring and summer. So that got to do a reset. Um, but since then we started doing a food journal. And so my wife and I, our goal is to try to try to be able to produce 10% of what we consume. Um, and that's not going to be like a year one. That's going to be a multi-year phase. It just kind of gives us that option and knowledge to say, if we wanted to be self-sustaining, mm-hmm. we could do it. We've, we've practiced it. We have something, you know, cause 10% is a long way from, 90 or a hundred percent, but you can grow that and scale it. And it'd be way more efficient to have a base and then grow it rather than trying to commit immediately to a hundred percent. So 
We've been we've been working on that from you know collecting honey, food, canning. We made more sauerkraut this year than uh, I've ever done <laughs> in the past. Uh, and but the great thing is we're loving it, and it's a brine sauerkraut. It's just it's it's awesome. So, um, so that part's going really well. Um, we're definitely excited about what the next growing season is going to look like. Because again, with that permaculture is how can I be water conscious of what mm-hmm. I'm putting on there, but also I'm not growing food, I'm not growing plants, I'm growing the soil, and the soil is then going to enable the plants to do what they're supposed to. So, so we looked at that, um, and, and I'm pretty excited about how we're going to take lessons learned and the failures that we had. So, what uh, was your to, big? So, what were the, some of those lessons learned? Yeah, so lessons learned is definitely keep an eye on the weather. Even if you think it's the middle of June and you don't have to worry about a hard frost, um, it'll happen. And if you don't cover your stuff in time, if you don't have the resources on hand, it's a lot better to to have the covers beforehand rather than ripping up your (laughs) guest bedroom sheets to try to save your plants oh man Uh, that's funny before you even said guest room sheets that is exactly what i had i had a picture of you and crystal literally like just grabbing beds like don't even care like i'm just gonna i'm gonna rip these off and make it work yeah so we did that and that put us behind on that so i think in the future we're gonna really kind of keep an eye on that like hey what does the old farmer's almanac tell us right what does our our actual uh, extension office recommending and kind of maybe being a little more in tune with, with that. Um, and having contingencies, just that one frost event put us probably five to six weeks behind on all of our, our harvests and things we had to, oh, to wow. restart. Yeah. I mean, you're talking all this, all the squashes, everything like that just knocked down. Um, so that also, um, then kind of water management again, some of the things we ended up doing, especially we have a clay soil. Mm-hmm. So some of the amendments that we tried doing kind of made a big muck in some of the, the areas where... So what did, what did you do? So we ended up using a lot of uh, compost, a lot of uh, st- straw, and a lot of other leaves and things that we could find. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I first, it was a new garden. So we went and tilled the first six inches, breaking in ground, um, I didn't take out the dirt clumps that still had grass in them. Mm. Probably should have done that. The other thing I didn't do is we looked at taking a lot of the the grass clippings from where we we mow our our field Mm -hmm. and trying to reincorporate that, right? Trying to make a closed system if we can. Yeah, the problem is I have Canadian thistle. I was just about to say, like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm not really in thinking it's great about putting a bunch of chemicals into things that I eat or things that live in my household eat. Mm-hmm. So Canadian thistles, it's an impressive animal or <laughs> plant, I should say. Like it invades. I mean, from a biological standpoint, I think that and napweed are just impressive and they're also just a monumental pain to deal with. So I don't know how we're going to deal with that come spring, I've got some good guidance from the extension office, so I'm going to continue researching that, but also find a way that I can do it, one, without goats, two, without poisoning my soil. So that's kind of going to be drink a cup of coffee when there's a little bit of snow and do some more research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's see. Since you came there, now we did also plant 120 vines on our small one-acre parcel this year. Oh, that's awesome. So we set up a vineyard. Uh, it kind of started off as just having 20 vines. 
Uh, and then through some research and maybe a little tax, property tax adjustments and understanding that we could get a rezoning to an agricultural tax basis, working with like the tax assessor and the state's office and different pe- professionals in the industry saying, hey, if we grow this from just a garden to actually having a, a blocked out trellised irrigated vineyard, uh, yeah, yeah, from a financial standpoint, it reduced our, our property taxes. So now we're a little farm technically which is pretty awesome like and i think that is an impressive feat i mean because you don't i mean you have some land but not i wouldn't say an insane amount no we're, we're literally at zero nine eight acres so uh but you almost can't tell the space because we used a space that we weren't using before um so it's kind of dual purpose it gives us a block from a busier road uh but also we planted a series of you know, table grapes and wine grapes and just things like that. So it should be pretty fun to to see how that grows. I do have some bad news on my grape front. Uh, My neighbors killed our plant that we'd been uh, bringing along our side of the fence. Oh, no. Yeah, they cut it down this year. So uh, we're going to be starting from ground zero instead of uh, using that plant to kind of seed our own. So that was a little bit of a bummer on our side. I think they got annoyed with the grapes, and they just got rid of the whole vine. So then it obviously then it came across and killed ours too. Oh, that's too bad. Well, I will. I do, we'll have to do some pruning here um, this winter and this spring when I also do some more thinning. Maybe I'll see about making you some clones as that well. That would be very awesome. Yeah, because that's definitely something we want to do too. <clears throat> I think having grapes is just a cool thing, especially since they actually grow well in our climate, which I was a little bit surprised about. Yeah, yeah. University of Minnesota has a really cool um, research branch. I mean, they're they're probably accredited with most of the North Hardy commercial varietals. Um, yeah, it, it's some pretty cool stuff what they what they've done through discovery and research. So, so that's kind of our, our, our backyard thing. We're pro- we're gonna do we did a lot of raised beds as well with uh, adding wood to it, just scrap wood. Yep. Um, I'm actually taking a bunch of lumber and wood like that. That's non pressure treated non-treated um that we use at our manufacturing shop for pallets and our drops and stuff like that we, we end up getting these huge boxes completely full and then we'll either have a bonfire but what i did is i decided to take a bunch of that lumber and use it to fill my my raised beds so i can have volume and as that breaks down it should kind of really add to that hugel culture method so we're pretty excited to build a couple more of those and see how the next couple of years will treat that yeah, that's that's something that we invested pretty heavily in this year was raised beds because they do make a world of difference. I and I know some people don't like them and some people love them, but man, I am I'm a big fan myself. I just being so tall, not having to dip all the way down to do your weeding and you know your your inspections and just make sure, and then even your harvesting just makes a huge difference for me. Well, and I think also you think about long term planning, right? It's depending where you are, it's. I'm currently 33, but I won't always be 33. I won't always have the knees, energy, and back that I have. So if I can build these things to minimize uh, ergonomical impact, they'll still have utility as I do age, and that'll become more of a chore and a burden. So try to engineer uh, enjoyment in gardening for the future. Yeah, because, I mean, if you do have an overall goal of increasing the amount of food you grow and then consume yourself you are going to have a i mean it's a lot of food i mean you know us as humans do eat a fair amount of food so i looked at it on the the one acre 
parcel that I have, I figured on, oh, was it on five eighths? If I converted five eighths to be a wheat producing area, it would, I could produce enough wheat so I could make a loaf of bread, which because I make my own sourdough, mm-hmm. uh, every day. Seriously? Yes. However, I also looked at the work and labor <laughs> that goes into it on a small scale. Um, it's nice to have the understanding that you could do it, but the practice is going to be very different. We're not going to be doing that. Because weed harvesting is actually fairly complicated from what I'm when, when I looked into it. And it has to be at scale, just a little tiny bit of it. I mean, it's so... I mean, me- mechanical farming is... It's an amazing modern invention. Like, and it, it, any sort of grain. At some point, I, I'd recommend... Uh, there's a couple great YouTube videos about watching guys grow rice from start to finish. Oh, my gosh. And the, the amount of rice that they grow in a patty versus what you can buy as a 50-pound bag, you're like, yeah, no, I'm going to go spend the $25. Uh, rather than the amount of work, but it makes you appreciate the the effort that goes into it. So, but same same with any I think other grain. So that's kind of interesting. Um, what is your what, biggest hit that you had this year? Like from like especially like what you and your family enjoyed to consume slash also had success growing. So potatoes, our potatoes failed miserably. Failed. Oh, that's Fail. not what I was expecting. I was expecting you to say, oh, we just love potatoes. We eat potatoes all the time. No, our potatoes just failed horrendously. Oh, my uh, gosh. So we had, we made a bed and breakfast, essentially, for voles and field mice. <laughs> and they came in, and they just didn't leave. Um, so kind of a nightmare, kind of expected uh that some of the things we're going to engineer a little bit out of 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 how we're going to create habitat or denial of habitat Mm -hmm. for the things that are eating the things we want um so that was an absolute failure but a good lesson learned and we're going to continue to to build on that this coming season um in Montana, radishes. Radishes are probably we grow radishes like it's going out of style. From radish greens to radishes, I mean, you're talking a 21 day from sow to to yield. Um, yeah, it's great. Pickled radishes. You can make radish green soups and salads and eat the radishes themselves. Like we did a lot of that. All right, we're gonna. I might have to get you some some recipes from you for radishes because that is something that we struggle with eating like pretty sure. badly. Like I just think they're kind of gross. Like they're not my favorite. Well, and you got it. You got, you have to, you have to grow into it. But you also have to then go out and like plant them every week because they grow so fast. And nothing's, it, it's not good when they get woody and stuff like that. But so those are the kind of things that we learned. Cabbage. We had a great success with cabbage this year. Like I said, we sauerkraut. We made, days. we made ten gallons of sauerkraut <laughs> this year. What do you? Are you? Are you keeping all that sauerkraut, or have you? Are you giving oh, yeah. away as gifts, or? No, we so we eat sauerkraut pretty regularly. Um, I so my French background, right? So mm-hmm. my French background is actually split. It's French and Alsatian. So Alsatian is like the border between uh, Germany and France and Alsace. Uh... Right. So my family is from a place called Bar, and sauerkraut is definitely in that tradition so when we think sauerkraut right we're thinking oh it's that 
jar of fermented cabbage we call sauerkraut and you put it on a sandwich or on like with a brat, uh-huh. right? Yep. So <laughs> That's exactly what I did. That, yeah. So that is sauerkraut, but also the meal sauerkraut is different. So like for me and my family, when we think sauerkraut, I mean, you're thinking a lot of the cabbage mm-hmm. then with also like uh, potatoes and, and meats and broccolis and, and things like that. Oh, wow. So, so it's it's so, really like an actual meal versus a condiment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely almost like a holiday festival kind of meal because you can make it in these mass quantities and you just be like, hey, here's some vegetable, right? And then just let's put the smoked meats and porks and all this other stuff all, all over it um, with all the mustards. And the way you cook it makes it no longer sour. It's not bitter. It's actually quite sweet. Um so it's a whole different process, and I definitely recommend anybody interested in diversifying their experience of sauerkraut away from just a bun and a brat to, to look up some of these, like, I traditional think, <laughs> meals. I think I'm going to have to do this because we have a giant jar of sauerkraut homemade, and we have another cabbage that needs to be made into sauerkraut, and I, I think I'm going to have to do this because, yeah, I mean, I love brats. Brats are great, right? But I got to watch my uh, my my saturated fats, so I'm I don't I don't eat brats very often. So this is a little bit better uh, alternative to use that sauerkraut up. Yeah, so I I will say the, uh, the 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 key is, and this is something my grandmother told me is you always have to wash it three times. You have to rinse it three times to really get that salty brininess off of it. Oh, wow. uh, so when you start to cook with it, you have a you have a really good product. And what do you what do you wash it? Is this just like a strainer? You just rinse it off and then let it sit for yeah. a bit. Rinse it off again. Yep. So I, I rinse it off, or I'll, I'll, I'll like get it so it's. Just, yeah, you can rinse rinse it off, move it around so that it, it kind of gets gets there. It, it's a pretty quick process. So, um, but yeah, so that that's kind of that was a really good success. We learned that maybe we'll do a little bit more spacing. I didn't realize how big they were going to get. Oh my gosh, that's we learned that the first time we did a garden. It was like broccoli. We planted broccoli yeah. and like I don't know broccoli are big but they don't aren't they don't I don't feel they're that big and then they start growing you're like oh my god like it just overtook all of our other plants. Oh, they're huge. That and uh, uh, cauliflower, <laughs> cauliflower just gets massive. I was like, wow, okay. I now understand why cauliflower is expensive. It has nothing to do with how hard the vegetable is. It's just physical space it takes. Like, yeah, well, and also because we Americans don't eat yellow cauliflower we eat white cauliflower so industrial cauliflower has been deprived of sunlight while it's been grown mm. so because because we eat with our eyes first right mm-hmm. so we want to yeah so that that's kind of interesting so if you grow sour or no, sauerkraut's on my mind now uh, if you grow cabbage just out of a seed will it turn yellow yeah unless you grow it and then you take the leaves and then rewrap it Weird. So, I mean, that's the same thing with uh, asparagus. So, what now? What what should color should asparagus be? So, asparagus is green, right? When it's mm-hmm. asparagus shoots and it's it's growing up. But the, what you can do is you can have them be blanched, right? You you mound dirt up around them as they're growing, so that way uh, they don't actually turn green. They're still white as a root would be. Oh, and weird. It's a, it's more of a delicacy in, in certain areas. So I didn't know about that either. Is there a flavor difference between like um, cal- yellow cauliflower and white cauliflower? So I personally don't like it either way. So I don't really know. All right, so um, Sebastian, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a recipe. It will change your mind on cauliflower. 
have I have been fully converted. I am on the cauliflower train, and even a year ago I wasn't. So recipe number one, fried rice cauliflower. It's the best. I'm not even kidding. Meal with my in-laws. They were here. We were talking about how healthy this meal was, and then my father-in-law said, yeah, but rice isn't the best for you. And I was like, that's not rice. That's cauliflower. He didn't have a clue. What? No, none. If you rice it correctly, if you don't know. Now, obviously, if I tell you, you're like, oh, yeah, this is obviously cauliflower. Or if you're looking for it. But, like, you know, he just came in. He was working. I think he went fishing all day. Came back. He was very hungry. I put a plate in front of him. Just He just started eating, right? He didn't have a clue. Second. Huh. All right. I'm second, fascinated now. Baked buffalo chicken style cauliflower. It's my favorite meal of all time. All right. Well, we're going to have to come over to dinner for that. Yeah, yeah. Because, no, I'm not even so. like this, this baked cauliflower, it's the best thing in the world. You basically, you flour it just like you do chicken wings, but you don't use chicken wings. You use cauliflower. Huh. And it is okay. seriously my favorite meal my wife makes, hands down. I, I can almost eat an entire head of cauliflower. That's exciting because th- one of the things I love doing is – like this year, I love that we still were able to have the farmer's market, right? I love mm, that we yep. can support the, the CSAs. We support the people that are either doing the market garden um, or the actual, the larger farms. So, cause I'm always looking for what can I buy in vegetables and what can I make fresh today in a different way? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, cause you, there's only so much zucchini you can go through oh, before you're yeah. very tired of zucchini. Uh, so I'm always looking for for that. Um, so that's really fun. Oh, speaking of, by the way, I don't know if you've ever looked at this. Market gardens are going to be the, the probably where I'm going to put most of my research effort this winter. Market. Okay, tell me more. <clears throat> so, if you ever get a, a chance to look at this, there's a he's got a great YouTube channel. Uh, Curtis Stone is this guy is just crushing it in the market garden space. He he's an urban farmer. Right. So think about like your traditional city lot, mm-hmm. right? And how could you farm a traditional city lot? Could you do that for, for monetary prosperity or at least, you know, uh, an average competitive income within your community? And if you look at your backyard, you're like, I don't think I have the space to do that. Well, I think he's out in the, the, the Oregon area, um, but he has converted his entire backyard and leased couple of his neighbors backyards and has turned it into a high productive market garden that's actually paying his mortgage and wow. his other living expenses uh it, it's a very very deep and broad topic to go into but i think it's definitely one of those great bits of research and actual practice that's going to create food production where elsewise would be food production deserts. You, know, you see, we are, we are talking about food deserts in terms of access to a grocery store yep. in a lot of urban areas, but, but food deserts in terms of where is stuff being produced? Uh, I mean, you can look at it from, do you want to talk about carbon footprint? Do you want to talk about transportation, spoilage, distance hauling, that kind of stuff to, to feed the, the massive market? Or you can also look at it from just, Here's a guy who is an urban farmer, still living in suburbia, but able to create a production zone within that community. 
I am such a big fan of micro production. So, you know, make it closer, especially if there's a spoilage time, right? Make it where it's closer, more efficient, and then direct to consumer. And I think with technology, it's really getting to the point where almost area, most of these areas were in terms of energy, um, food. It's getting more and more feasible to pull this off. It is. I think there's also there's two other components that go with this, right? Is you have to your consumers have to change their perception of what they want to eat. It can't all just be steak and potatoes all the time, which it shouldn't be anyways. Like right, um, but also iceberg lettuce shouldn't like. It, 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 there's this big transition when when you look at head lettuce through USDA. They're talking about iceberg lettuce. You have to talk about like romaine and other leafy greens to get into the nutritional substance of lettuce, right? So it's stuff that's grown for nutrients and 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 health, really, rather than just bulk volume mm-hmm. and weight. So so I think we're we're starting to see those transitions. Exactly what you're talking about is, hey, the farmers markets are great when they're open, but Andy, where am I going to go get? locally produced food from my community in November, December, January, that time frame, right? So I think I think difficult. you're on to something. If we can get more people involved on the micro side, then yeah, it's a way to create a more of a food web, right? So I think that's pretty interesting. And the nice thing too is if you're taking, you know, product, your food product, and you're taking it, you know, a mile down the road, way easier it lasts longer it's fresher it's better for you all you know the money stays locally which is another cool concept there's very little issues with it except you can't scale it out right scale is the issue and if you're able to to get enough where you don't need to you know have 80 acres you can focus locally on you know good soil management crop rotation you know the things that every farmer should do but it's easier just not to do with chemicals, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so, so then there's the other thing I wanted to, to bring up that we can do this. It's with a revitalized concept of an artisan craft or an artisan specialist in the food production. I mean, we see a lot of, of artisans making uh, Etsy things. They're mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm an artisan. I'm making these little knickknacks and these bobs and things like that, right? But there's also a whole dietary or food-based uh, artisanship that that's available. We see it in a lot of European countries as well. And I think that's something that we need to encourage and foster and find in our local communities. Hey, who makes really good cured sausages, mm-hmm. right? It, it, all these different little niches that could be, hey, Andy works in technology, but also grows, you know, has a, a microgreen business and an egg delivery business for his 25 people that are in his community if they want it. And yeah, technology can absolutely enable that. But we have to get people to see the value in becoming producers of those types of products. And also so. on the consumer side, it's pretty difficult to sometimes sell food products as a non-commodity, which I, I hate to say it, but like you compare it to the grocery store, it's just not comparable. I mean, we got we have a winner's market here, which I don't know if you've been yet. It's really awesome. I don't know if it's every week, but I highly recommend it. Um, we got some of the best carrots in the entire world, 
and they were amazing. And then we went to the grocery store and we ran out and they sucked. Like they were just yeah. like, it's the difference between I like my food and I love my food. And like when you love your food, you tend to eat better. If you make an amazing dinner, you tend to not need dessert. If you have a mediocre dinner where you didn't love it, you tend to want dessert because it kind of wraps up the meal, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's an excellent example. So, like, we stopped at Turner's Farm here in Missoula um, before Halloween and got some bacon because they were also doing it from their farm stand. And I loved every time we made that bacon because it didn't shrink. It wasn't just fat. It wasn't just grown for weight and volume. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, it was that animal was nurtured, treated with respect and made such a good quality product. And now when I have some store-bought bacon, because, well, we need some bacon. Uh, and it just, it was disappointing. Yep. So disappointing so, from, from yeah. seeing that. And it, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. If you, if you respect the quality of what you're consuming, uh, I think you end up needing less of it and you Agreed. appreciate more of it. Uh, I was um, going to say the same thing. Like I tend to eat less when the food's better. Yeah. So it, it, that's just, I think there, there's an interesting psychology that we have to, as a whole consumeristic Americana machine is really considers if it's right, what we're doing, not just environmentally or socially, but also just emotionally. Like, are we, are we actually in tune with what we want versus what we need? And are we actually meeting that through things we appreciate and find fulfilling? So, I mean, that that's kind of, I think about food quite a bit in terms of that capacity. So. I think food is one of the most important changes I've had in my lives and my opinion of food. You know, you would have asked past Andy 10 years ago, you know, what kind of flour should you buy? Cheapest flour I can find. Okay, what kind of eggs should you get? Cheapest eggs you can find, right? And, man, my opinion on that is night and day difference now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's again, it's what you eat, eat, right? And that can go all the way down to the core. You know, kind of just to backtracking here for a minute, because it just spurred back to me. We talk about urban areas, right? And they talk about backyard farming again. I think one of the things that there's such a huge waste um, of potentially compostable material. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, multiple ways. We look at, so just at my house, a couple of years ago, we started a, a, a worm bin, right? Composting with a worm bin. And we took all of our kitchen scraps and we just put them in our composter outside. Yep. Um, it cut down on the trash production that we needed to take out to the landfill significantly. We were on a weekly pickup with the standard trash can size. And now... We use the smallest that they have, and I called to see if we could do a every other week pickup, uh, and they can't. They won't do that. It's not yeah. in their route. We, we, we have the same problem. Like every other week, we don't with between recycling and composting, we don't have trash. Yeah, so so you you look at that kind of stuff. I mean, kids make it. Kids make trash. Having kids is, is definitely an environmental impact. But Agreed. but when we're looking at composting, so I've composted for my what I'm consuming in, in my household and what I'm bringing in. But then also like from my backyard, when I mow the lawn, when I'm tr trimming branches, when we're raking leaves, here we rake leaves into the street because the city picks them up, right? All these different things. But Which I hate, by the way. Every, 
every ounce of organic matter that we're just taking away from where we're living, we're, we're, we're depriving the soil that's around us of being productive. Yeah, so, I loved it when our compost facility was not city-owned because it was free to drop off for, cons- you know, like us, right? We never really dropped off enough material where it would have made a difference, and now they charge for it. And I really feel that's kind of a disservice to our city. I think having a place where, you know, if you don't want to compost it yourself, I get it. You mess up. Compost can be stinky, right? Like, I messed up, oh, yeah. and my compost was definitely not in in proper ratio. It took a while to get back into ratio and all that fun stuff. And I get it. But if you don't have another easy option, then you're just going to choose throw it away. And that's the unfortunate thing because you already pay for a trash service. They come and pick it up and then you don't have to deal with it anymore. And it's a little bit unfortunate that that's the situation we're in. Yeah. And I mean, you look at, I think it's, uh, I might be wrong on this one, but it's, it's pretty similar. I think it's for every percentage that you can increase a cubic yard of soil in our organic matter, it'll retain like another one to two liters of water. Oh, that so makes sense. When when we're in Montana, here in Missoula, we're at 3,000 feet. Um, you know, we seem to get a fair amount of snow, We but we get harsh winters, but fairly dry winters mm-hmm. often. Uh, and in the summer, it still gets quite hot, and it still can be fairly dry or extended periods without rain. So we try to think about how can you increase systems to be self-sustaining. And so what I'm doing a lot of research on also is increasing organic matter just, again, to grow the, the mycorrhizae and the bacteria and stuff like that. But, I mean, you got to remember, half of the reason I'm doing this is because I planted a vineyard, and uh, apparently in a couple of years I'll be able to try to make a bunch of wine and things like that. So got to have good quality product so we can have a good old festival. Yeah. I, I just, I wish that everyone was more on the same track on the, on composting. Cause I, it's funny though, because like, this is a little bit of a side tangent. This is not where I was going, but I'm going to say it anyways. I am now getting annoyed at things that say they're compostable and they're not. That's my newest, be- biggest pet peeve. Like, you can buy plastic silverware that are compostable in quotes, but they're not actually. Like, how is that legal? Well, so you look at it, it, it technically it is, Andy. This drives me nuts, comp- though. Like, you're right. Technically it is. everything is compostable. It, but what it does is not everybody's actively managing a hot compost. Like, so when I do mine, I have a composting thermometer. I get it up and I maintain it for three weeks between, well, two weeks between 150 and 160 degrees center temperature, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you can put stuff in that and it's going to go very quickly or I can shred it and it'll go faster, right? But I understand what you're saying. It's kind of this, oh, we feel better because it says compostable. It's... But also, we lose so much utility. I mean, have you seen these like paper straws? Tell me that you've ever had a satisfying experience. No, they're they're the worst. They're the absolute (laughs) worst. Uh, We went to a wedding. You were at the same wedding. We went to a wedding in Astoria, um, and we went to a restaurant in Oregon, Oregon, and uh, they don't allow plastic straws. Which again, I support. I don't like straws in general, but I'm just weird that way. Um, And so they give us paper straws, and my daughter never actually i think successfully used it because of how terrible it was yeah no that's just it's it's a it's a product that is like look do we really need a straw in that case like (laughs) like we can just get rid of this thing i think we're fine okay maybe you'll just have to drink your frappe like from the side 
using your mouth. So <laughs> I don't know. This is another like total side tangent, but we're really getting out of um, coded things. So things that are w- with a coding, we're getting rid of all of in our house. Like that's our, that's like our 2020 end of 2020 thing. And like, even with straws, like it's like the same thing. So like, it's like, well, why don't we just get stainless steel straws? Like stainless steel is so good for that stuff. Like, I guess you might have a little bit of a tingy taste or whatnot, but like, let's just use, just wash the straws. I mean, you can put them in a washing machine. Just do it that way. That just seems so much better than paper straws. Like I just cannot stand paper straws. Well, and and paper products, you require a tremendous amount of resource still to, to fabricate and make. And and it's, it's interesting. But anyway, so anyway, that was kind of a long discussion about what did Sebastian start since you saw my garden. But that's that's kind of where where my mind's been going of, you know, are, are we still is it the endless pursuit of dollars to buy commodities or can we manufacture some of our commodities ourselves and at home? Uh, what can we do to to still prosper, but maybe in a more primary good way? So that's kind of. We've got a long way to go. Uh, an adage that I still like is, you know, 20 years ago was the, the best time to plant a tree. Today's oh, the I next know. best day. So. <laughs> oh, that, that's actually pretty clever. That is very true, too, by the way. Plant so we're trying, to, we're trying to plant trees. We're trying to plant trees and, and all sorts of different things. So what so. kind of trees are you going? Like, we got two apple trees. One of them will eventually die because it was never pruned, never taken care of. So. Um, that will go away. We have a spot to plant one more tree in our front yard. But the problem we're running into, like, we love apples. We could eat apples for days. And when we have apples, we do eat apples forever. What other fruit do, do you do you feel you can stand having that much of? Oh, man. See, and what it looks like when it comes to fruit trees, I don't eat a tremendous amount of the actual fruit itself. I use... <laughs> products of it. I mean, either, I mean, we'll make a couple apple pies here and there and some, some butters and stuff like that and some jams and jellies. But, but really, I mean, we're making cider, we're making mm-hmm. byproducts. I'm, I'm, I'm adding biomass to my compost. Uh, I mean, those are, that's kind of really what I look at a lot of that stuff. The too. apple cider that we made this year um, with my new cider machine, which by the way, is just the best thing I've ever built my entire life. Um, the pulp that comes out of it makes the best compost. I mean, it is gone so fast. Like I filled my compost to the brim and I don't even know if two weeks it was back down to half full. That's, that's awesome. That's excellent. I guess it's kind of crazy how well that stuff composts down. And it also really helps with keeping ratios and the right balance and stuff like that too. It feels like, cause the smell just isn't there when that, when you fill it full of that. Well, and so one of the other things you might look at is maybe don't plant a tree for for its secondary properties, right? Mm. Plant like a plant a linden uh, or something, uh, or maples are great. I mean, looking from beekeeping, maples oh. maples are what saves bees. I love maple in the trees first. Too. And yeah, they have a byproduct too. But in the first, <laughs> they're the first flowering tree in this area, and that that saves the bees as they're emerging and they actually have something to eat. So. Um, that, that, that's something that you might consider. Uh, I don't know. I, I, we still try to figure out, well, plant two or three a year. I think winter will probably kill one every other year or so. So kind of continue to go that route. So, yeah. So that's a, uh, hmm, let me think here. So 
what trees have you planted? Have you have you started your planting of trees, or have you kind of like hold off for now and you're doing it in the spring? Oh no! So I mean, we've planted oh six apple trees. I've planted two plum trees, a peach tree. Uh, I planted a couple oaks. We've planted a bunch of different pine trees that we've either propagated or or transplanted from from other areas. Um, couple maples one of the things that i'm really into right doing right now is dogwoods what's that because uh, i have i have a bunch of dogwoods flowering dogwood uh, it's a native plant for for uh, western montana uh they make really great hedges and they're also dogwoods are throughout i think all of north america huh. um but so come around here january i'll probably make a bunch more hardwood cuttings and use some rooting hormone. I'll probably put 100 or 200 in those and expect to get about 25 new plants this uh, this spring and summer when they take root and break dormancy. Wow. So free free plants, right? I mean, like, I'm also the kind of guy who I will keep a pair of pruning shears in my truck and I will drive by and be like, ooh, that looks like an interesting branch that's sticking out and take a cutting of it, put in some rooting hormone, and start growing. <laughs> <scrambling. laughs> I also, and I might give you a fruit tree this uh, this spring, my father, back in the 80s, well, maybe in the 90s, imported a plum tree from Alsace. And this is a plum tree. It's a Mirabelle plum. Uh, it might be banned in the United States because of the big plum or industry it was concerned about them. Uh, oh, my God. Is that exactly seriously sure. a thing? Like there, There is a thing. Like It is a, it is <laughs> oh a controlled plum. Because uh, they're small and apparently a choking hazard, just like a cherry. Uh, but either way, so he might have brought one of these back, and it's grown to be massive, and we have made a lot of cuttings off of this thing, and I probably have about 20 of them in my backyard. We'll see if they uh, how they do the winter, and we'll give you one here. Yeah, so is it like a sweeter plum since it's smaller, or is it, it more is, like a crab So it's, it's, it's a sweeter, very high um, sugar content. It's a yellow plum. Hmm. Um they make great jams, jellies, pies, but also they're used in making uh, a very traditional um, eau de vie, uh, a, f- a distilled liqueur, if you oh, will. Oh, okay. So from from that that region. So anyway, that's that's kind of a, a fun one. Um, wow. Yeah. So are you thinking like over the next year you're going to have enough too much stuff, or are you? What's your concern in that area? Are you ever like, eh, I can always make more, or? Are you like, oof, I've, I've overtaxed my limit on what I think I can do in my yard? No, actually, it's at first, yes. But as we're looking at it, and I'm like, well, we're only at an acre. But at this point, I think I'm only effectively using uh, maybe uh, an eighth of an acre on what I'm doing. So the more that I learn, the more that I kind of understand the different micro ecosystems that I'm trying to build on my property, um, I'm, I'm, and the more I'm learning, I'm kind of retooling. And there's some areas that I haven't even touched, probably have about a half acre that I haven't even touched yet because I know that at some point in the future, I will learn more and a better way to do what I'm trying to do and meet my goals. I just don't have the experience or knowledge yet, so I'm going to leave that area alone until I actually have a vision of how to properly use that canvas. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. The other option we also have is we could split that lot in the future. We probably won't, but you know it does kind of address. There is a way to create more land and more housing. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, did you see they passed the 
an ADU guidance for Missoula? No. Okay, explain that. So ADUs, auxiliary dwelling oh, units. Oh, AD. Right? I thought you said eighty eight eight zero u and I was super confused. No, no the ADU uh, for, for Missoula is kind of reducing the, the lot size requirements, which should potentially spur a lot of homeowners to say, hey, let's convert that garage into you know, uh, a cottage house or something like that. And it's a way to potentially increase density or increase volume of housing without drastically increasing cost of housing and stuff like that. So I, I like the idea of ADUs if parking is, if parking's kind of taken care of, right? Cause that's where you, I always feel is the big problem is people put them in dumb places and then like, ah, you can park on the street and then you have just, you know, our streets are not the whitest no, our, street, our streets are not. And also being a, this, our latitude here, uh, public transportation isn't always feasible, especially in the next four months uh, or as efficient for, mm-hmm. for a lot of people. So it, it's that, that's definitely a concern. Yeah. But, I did not see, are you thinking about maybe that's something that you guys want to do? I don't know, but it, it, we we're keeping it as an option. One of the things that we really think about quite a bit or I consider quite a bit is again from my European roots we have this multi-generational household right I think that's something that we view a multi-generational household in this country as a fell on hard financial times and maybe has a little bit of a stigma it's like oh gotta live with my folks or my folks Mm -hmm. live with us but flip that onto kind of a, a European background is look you still incorporated your family with your 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 daily life because they still had value. Not just that, like grandma doesn't have value, right? But they had <laughs> actually poor like, grandma. No, no, right? But they had the ability to kind of engage with the children, or still had tasks. It was this more of this. You're still viable to, to be productive as a as a family and as a member of the family, and, and that's pretty appealing to me. So I'm thinking about. As my parents get older, as my grandparents get older, how how can I incorporate that rather than say, ah, let's shove you in a old folks' home because you Man, treat I, old people like commodities, and I'm yeah, like, oh, no, I don't have to think about them. That's a really so. good point. That's a really good point because if they're there, like, yeah, maybe they can't be there forever, but boy, you can really increase the quality of their life and like their life with your family if that's an option for people. So that is actually kind of a cool option for that. It is. And one of the things is like, you know, you have to design it and have good communication, which I think a lot of people struggle with good communication with their family because it's, it's family. It's awkward. But <laughs> I mean, from my background as a real estate investor and in rental properties, and I'm looking at what the ROI is for assisted living communities. And these places are ridiculously expensive. You think uh, yeah. rent's expensive right now for most Americans? What if you were fixed income and 70 and you don't have a back to go and make more income anymore? Like, that, that, that's, that's a really scary thing from the investment side. You're like, wow, the ROI is huge. Yeah, and I also really don't like that industry. And I apologize if anyone works in that industry, and I'm sure you do good work. But that industry, I feel, is just there to eat your retirement. Like, And that's, again, personally biased opinion, but... I, you know, just going through that with my grandparents and the amount of money they spent and how little retirement, I mean, they had good retirement until they went in there and they're like, oh my gosh, like then we all were like, oh, 
like things are getting rough, like really fast. And it's just feels like that's an unfortunate way to spend that hard earned money that they spent, you know, 40 years cultivating in their careers. Yeah. I mean, one of the most interesting parts about 2020, I think is going to be the economic impact for the, the remaining next 20 to 30 years. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe a little less than that, but, um, we, we printed $7 trillion in the span of six months. There was 21 about, right? And we, 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 we created a huge surplus of something, and now all that was there before has less purchasing power by unit. So I'm pretty concerned about the viability and the transition from the greatest generation, right, of the, mm-hmm. the fixed the fixed income, the the fixed retirement, the, the the blue chip. I mean, forget the volatility in the stock market. Even though you know, <laughs> if you did nothing, you'd be all right. But but even still, that that blue chip dividend yielding security that a lot of our grandparents and used to as a retirement vessel. Um, on top of Social Security, I, I'm very concerned about every unit of appreciation that we're going to see from this year, either devaluation of the purchasing power of the dollar, the increasing cost of housing, living, construction materials, wages, services, all of those things. And Andy, you and I are in a position physically where, bummer, dude, we got to go get another, we got to go shovel snow, Mm -hmm. right? We need to make a little bit more. We can still trade our our body physically for for goods and services, for jobs, things like that, right? Like we can go cut wood. We can go do a little bit of extra more data entry or security or analysis or something like that. Our our fixed income retiree people have been, especially those who have been out of the workforce for, for a significant period of time, one, age discrimination is a huge problem. Huge problem. So, so I'm very concerned about how the economic impact is going to affect the, that group of people. And so that's why I'm thinking, at least for, for my family, what can I do where I still can afford them a quality of life with dignity, right? Mm-hmm. And also that my family can still be my family because the last thing I really want to do is live with my mom or have my mom live with me. Yep. But if she were to live in close proximity and we could work as a family, then sure, I'm okay with that, right? So those are the kind of things that I'm, I'm trying to figure out. And if more of us can figure out how to make that work where we still keep our, our dignity, our, our own slice of sanity, we'll call it, uh, and, and privacy, even within our family, I think, I think that might be a solution. But man, that's a tough pill to swallow again for such a dispersed country and culture. Yeah, and like, I mean, in some houses you could probably have an ADU, some houses you couldn't, whether or not you could afford that to even start. Like, I mean, there's a lot of factors in there too, but it's really nice to have that option. Again, keeping things in-house, keeping it micro, much more smaller. I I just really love those concepts in general, and I I really feel the cons to those are very little. And that's why I'm kind of still passionate about this 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 rapid modular housing unit that I've been designing and contemplating for like the last eighteen months. It's it's it, it stemmed from identifying a homeless population, right? There's about 150,000 plus uh, at any given time permanent homeless people in the United States that are counted. 
uh, and I'm sure the numbers are, are significantly higher. But then you look at what the burden for each of those on average to a municipality, it's like approximately, and I forget the, the, the reference on it, but it's like 68 to 75,000 a year is the burdened overhead that a single homeless person causes on a city. So what I'm looking at in the start of how could we design a product that meets everybody's essential service needs, you know, a place to sleep, temperature controlled, some place to do food storage, food preparation, and sanitary uh, needs, necessities. And how could you do it in a way that you could rapidly set it up? It has at least a five-year shelf life and, uh, and really put people into housing where it says, hello, welcome, you have a house, that you have a place to live, and we'll work on transitioning into back into being a productive uh, member of society. And there's such yeah. in, something so much more to say about this is your place. This yeah. isn't a temporary place. This isn't somewhere where you get for the winter and then you have to go back on the street. This is this is yours. Now, obviously, there will be some requirements and all that fun stuff, but they'll be reasonable. But I think just when people own something. They take so much better care of it. I oh, mean, absolutely. Even like you look as simple as company laptop versus personal laptop. I mean, company laptop, how often do you see them? I mean, I literally had somebody once run their computer over with their truck. I was like, why was your computer standing in front, sitting in front of your truck? And he's like, ah, I was busy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it happens with personal machines, but I bet that problem is very rare for a personal laptop. <laughs> Sure. And it's sure. Just, I mean, so that, and that's just a, such a minor example. Like, you know, you can get a laptop for 500 bucks. This is a house. And even like, even if it's a cheap small house, it's still a house, which is a significant, you know, boost to your personal morale. It shows that your community cares about you and is wanting to help you succeed. I just, I'm really fascinated by your idea. And I, that is the last thing I wanted to follow up with you on is like, so I know you've kind of had some rough designs or where are you in this project? So here's we've gotten to the point that it is beyond my core competency of what I can do. At this point, there's a lot of intricacies that need to happen. And what I need to do is get a, a room full, maybe a socially distant room full or a virtual room full <laughs> uh, of really both engineering kind of minded folks and also a lot of left brain artistic, how do we put this together through materials that meet the framework of housing, mm -hmm. but also the functionality, but also so that we're, it doesn't feel like we're building like cells. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that's kind of the next thing I need to do is, is, is host a, almost a startup weekend or an innovation weekend. So that's, that's going to be a great winter project I see coming up, especially when the snow starts getting deep, uh, getting people's minds engaged on that. Man, I definitely, when you get this, make some more progress on that, I definitely would love to have you come on and talk about that in further detail because that is it, it's something that's truly fascinating to me because it's, it is a major problem in our country, and it drives me nuts that it's a major problem. Well, and I'll take it a step further. So we, we saw last year and the year before the tiny house movement start, right? Mm -hmm. There, it's, it's a really cool idea. It's kind of going in hand-in-hand hand with that minimalist. And, and there's a lot of controversy that, you know, it's – to be a minimalist is, is a luxury because you can always go and you have that, that safety net of, oh, if I need it, I'll just go buy it. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of controversy with that. But 
I think the fundamental problem is we see with that and we see also with like mobile homes, financing. Access to credit and financing is a huge problem that we we don't have equality or equal access to. And the people who need financing, especially the, for, for critical infrastructure, the way that our whole credit system is established and the rules of what can and cannot be financed with preferred lending rates, it's backwards. It favors those who don't need the money. Yep. And it, it, <laughs> and it penalizes people that need the hand up. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking you're talking a lot of uh, mobile homes that are, you know, pre seventies. They can't be financed for, uh, or there'll be a, an unsecured or some other ridiculous loan at high terms. And even the ones after that, you're talking right now, Andy. You and I would go shopping for primary home mortgage. We're, we're looking at the the three and a half to four and a half percent based on. On credit, but that that's probably a reasonable expectation at this point, mm-hmm. uh, especially with what like prime rate is. Um, but if we were to try to go get quali- qualified for, let's say, you know, fifty or sixty thousand dollars of a of a modular house, I mean, we'd be looking at seven or eight percent or higher. Gosh, yeah, I- I- exactly. And, and the 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 loan to value isn't quite as there. It's just and and they that is such a a gap that doesn't allow people to transition as easily from, you know, being a tenant, a renter with nothing to build equity on to a stepping stone into something they could build equity on. So when I talk about my tiny, my, my nine by nine cube, if you will, that has a basic (laughs) housing unit. um, These are something that they can be an asset for somebody. Mm -hmm. They can be, sold, they can be bought, they can be financed, they still have value as a, as a property. So someone's not just making their rent payment, which is really rent payments are paying somebody else's mortgage, yep. right? Um, but it's a way for them to make a mortgage payment or some sort of finance payment where they're building some sort of equity in a, in a piece of property. And, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Robert Kiyosaki's uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think it's a phenomenal read. It's a, If anybody's looking for uh, an initial entry into personal finance and is like, man, I just can't get ahead. That book is, I love the way it's written, and it, it's, it's definitely a great first step into helping carve the path for just everyday Americans towards financial freedom. Uh, I mean... We've talked about this before. One of my one of my goals is when I get closer to retirement or my kids take up less of my time, I want to be able to go teach personal finance oh, to man, me too, high school man. kids and and things like that. One thing that maybe me and you should think about doing sometime is doing like an online free finance class. That's something that's been roaming in my head. Like I have conversations with friends and some of the things I that they tell me, Sebastian, just hurt my head. Like you know, I love my friends and, you know, I'm not, I'm not there to advise them. I'm not there to be their dad, but I I just struggle with the way, the way our generation handles money just kind of makes me cry. And I don't know why it's our generation that it seems to be the, the big problem children in that area, but 
I, I just feel like it'd be great to start focusing on the next generation and seeing if we can make that not be a problem for them. I agree. Well, and I think it again, we have some cultural taboos and one of ours is you don't talk about, don't talk about finances or money. in mm, social valid. Right? Yeah. But that's the only way you learn about things is Andy. If I didn't ask people about gardening, I, I would never be able to make any progress on gardening. So we take it with such a, a personal status level like oh we can't talk about that because we're comparing status it's such a bad yardstick but it's such again i have another adage is money isn't anything but not having money is everything yeah so so i mean that that's it's something that i yeah we we should do something on that one that would be a big passion project for me as well it's it's housing and giving people the tools to grab their financial futures and have hope. So, which well, is man. also why I, I love Kiva, by the way, if you ever look into that. Kiva, what is Kiva? So check out Kiva loans. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal micro lending platform. Um, of all the charities that I like, I think that one does probably the most good for the world um, because they're not doing donations it's not aid it's not um just injecting capital into impoverished countries or things like that but it's actually finding individual entrepreneurs around the world in different areas and saying hey if you had some access to credit could you do more for yourself and your community Uh and the answer is yes i mean one of the things is if you were needing to start up a business and you needed $500 because of the currency exchange and the value of the power of the U.S. dollar, I mean, that's a huge life-changing sum to start up a business in some of these other countries. Now, Fandy, if I said, hey, if you had $500 now, would that help you launch a U.S.-based startup? And you're like, I I think maybe I could get a domain. Yeah, maybe, yep. (laughs) So, Dot pizzas, they're pretty cheap. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's kind of what I, what I look at is I think these little types of things and access to credit, access to housing, access to entrepreneurship, those are the things that are passion projects of how do we, we're not going to solve all the big problems, but we can make inroads a little bit at a time on these areas. Man, I think that is uh, very well said and very true. I think sometimes when you look at these big problems, you get very overwhelmed and it doesn't feel like you can do anything. But focusing on little bits of those problems and really going all in on those smaller bits makes the problems a little bit more easy to chew. Yeah, yeah. So I have a question for you, Andy. Okay. Because you're my, you're my technical guy. Uh-oh. I know, right? You're 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 one of the people that I, I lean on when I'm trying to understand emerging technologies or, or things like that. If you're gonna ask uh, me about TikTok, I can't help you, friend. No, no. I <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't understand the appeal. I, I, I really don't. But but what I'm and I, I actually don't I'm completely breaking away from any of the social media because I'm finding it doesn't add value to my life. I agree. So but what I'm really interested in is understanding or trying to understand how 5G and a, and the smarter everything 
is like how's how's my smart coffee mug gonna make my life better or smart everything so this is and and where is that gonna go and how fast can we see that so I got good news and bad news good news is 5g is gonna be rolling out it's in Montana I have a friend who used it it was incredibly fast bad news is 5g is the biggest marketable hype bullshit that you'll ever see <laughs> 5G is not not the answer to just about anything. That's the unfortunate thing. Um, 5G will solve very few problems the average consumer will ever face. The best part about 5G is it's an, an ability to have massively dense nodes. So you can have, at a football stadium, you'll be able to remain connected with all, you know, 60,000 other of you. That's where 5G really shines. 5G is also incredibly fast on the backhaul, so that's another advantage of 5G. In terms of 5G being the platform that all these smart cars are going to start talking to, it's too slow on latency. It's not actually going to help anything in that aspect. So you're telling me that this, this new rollout, it's faster than everything that we've seen but it's not fast enough to actually be useful for anything that we actually want it for. It's the way that latency works and it would have to be all internet work, which would mean it's not on the net on, not on the internet. It would be within the network of the, uh, whatever carrier you're doing. And then you'd be limited to whatever rules that they would let you have. And you'd have to pay for those rules. So a common network that, you know, I used to help run was an MPLS, which is kind of like a backend network that you pay for running on someone else's network. So you can have an incredibly fast private network that's not ran on the internet. And that's amazing, but you pay an insane amount of dollar for that. And, <laughs> Andy, and, this is exactly why I don't invest in technology companies. Yeah. I know nothing of what you just said. Yeah, it's just... It is, it is so Greek to me that that we're looking at this and I'm like, you know, I wish, I feel like I should know more about what you just said and the terms that you said. But again, it's one of those things that I don't, I don't see how I can actually position myself and my family ahead on, on this type of technology. Whereas I think maybe I just need to stick to growing more zucchini. And yeah, I, honestly, if I, if, <laughs> if I had to like bet what will influence your life more 5g or your home garden, home garden, not even a question. If 5G was rolled out tomorrow and you had a 5G phone, I bet you'd barely even notice it. And I bet in the next five years, you'll have still only a 5G phone and no other 5G device. The only way this changes is if the carriers decide to start doing in-home connectivity and they can start challenging the charters, the Comcasts, and the local ISPs. That would probably be the biggest influence that 5G may have on you. But so far, only T-Mobile has announced something, and it's quite a ways off before it being able to replace your home net, home uh, internet provider. Um, you know, you could get away with it, and there'd be very kludgy things you'd have to do in certain situations and for certain individuals. But for your average person, you're probably going to stick to your home ISP if you have one today. So, so in the meantime, you're thinking I should ditch Evil Empire and just really hope Elon gets his Starlink going. Starlink's out. I got a beta invite. It's just really expensive. <laughs> well yeah i mean when you're it's, launching stuff into space we don't have a an elevator what are you so gonna do? the uh <laughs> the antenna alone is five hundred dollars okay yeah so maybe you know getting the world the mission statement of getting 
the world connected onto its little little cost prohibitive. Yeah, and like and- I would love to test it out because I've seen the the initial numbers from some beta testers, and they're very impressive. Like it's it's probably one of the most impressively built networks to date. But for a $500 investment plus $100 a month for a service I would have to have on top of my other internet provider because I could not give up the reliability, especially now that we're all working from home. It's just kind of more depressing more than anything. Like, I do have a friend that lives in the middle of nowhere who does not have internet service, and I am going to call him this week to see if I can get him to sign up for it. That's one of my goals this nice. week. So uh, I will I will let you know how that goes because I do think – um in this 2020, we've all learned a lot about ourselves. And I think one thing a lot of people have learned is you don't need to live in a big city to be happy. And now luckily we're in Montana and we're kind of spoiled in that in all aspects. But I think even in Montana, there's certain areas that we would even love to live that one of the reasons we don't want to live there is because there's bad connectivity, either via even just an old school phone number or even internet. And I do think Starlink will open that door and allow you to live almost anywhere you want and you will have your own reasons, but connectivity will not be one of the reasons why you don't live there. That's fascinating. I, I, I think there's, there's a whole other conversation to explore on one of the things that you had just mentioned is, is, is happiness where you live in this 2020 zoom city, mm, right? Mm-hmm where people who have the ability to work from home are doing so. And I'd be really interested at some point, and maybe this is something you find a specialist to to interview on this, but is the happiness index going to increase or decrease from the average telecommuter for either those who have been in the 2020 pandemic work from home mode corporations and companies that will continue to use this model post-COVID as we've seen some of the earnings reports just be pretty phenomenal uh, in a lot of these companies still. Um, And the the, the individual employee overhead levels just dropping. So is this going to continue to be a model that persists into the future? Is it going to have a positive or a negative social impact and psychological impact on those <laughs> who are working from home. Totally. And how is that we how are we going to see based on what you just said the individuals especially technology workers ability to live anywhere that they have connectivity. So their their reasons for where they live don't have to be tied to the corporate office or an urban area. And how is that going to impact the national rural economy? Man, I think, first of all, I want to thank you so much. We have to end it here because I think we could easily go for another hour and I'm going to cut us off, which is exactly what I kind of hope to have for this episode, episode 10, which I'm super excited and proud of. Um, but I think I may have to have you on because I would love to dig into this deeper with you because I think your perspective and my perspective are so different. It would be a pretty fascinating conversation. Yeah, I would love to. And Andy, I'm going to definitely hit you up for that cauliflower rice. 
I have yes, it written in the show notes. I will put it in the show notes for everyone who's listening too, because everyone needs to. I just ate to... a bunch of food, but that sounds amazing. And thanks for thanks for doing this. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, Sebastian, thank you so much for your time, and we'll catch you later.